This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio, iTunes, and audiobookradio.net. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. And we're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. On today's show, chef Nancy Silverton discusses her new cookbook, Moza at Home, more than 150 crowd-pleasing recipes for relaxed family-style entertaining. Then PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Havish reveals PW's best books of 2016. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly Bestseller List, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. What's happening in nonfiction? Well, Mark? so we've got, um, it's slim. It's slim with the debuts. Lots of big books on the list, but with debuts, our, uh, our well, highest one is at number one. This is called The Magnolia Story by Chip Gaines and Joanna Gaines. Uh, they're the husband and wife team from HGTV's Fixer Upper. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, they, they kind of take everyone through their lives together from the very first renovation project they tackled to uh, the project that nearly cost them everything. Um, and it's, it's, uh, it's a narrative. And I got to say, this hugely popular with 125,000 copies sold nearly 125,000 wow. copies sold the first week. So that's that's kind of a big that's kind of a big land for that's them. That's very so, impressive. Yeah, it really is. A lot of people fixer uppers are at least dreaming of fixing upping. Uh, <laughs> at number 7, we have Buffering Unshared Tales of a Life Fully Loaded by Hannah Hart. Uh, this is uh, comedian Hart's uh, debut memoir. She's the host of the YouTube show My Drunk Kitchen. Here she delves deep into her past, sharing her experiences with family, mental illness, sexuality, friendship, and love. We say that fans will be pleased that other stars such as comedian Grace Helbig make guest appearances, and like a true role model, Hart uses her platform to raise awareness of the shortcomings of the current U.S. medical system in treating mental health. So, big YouTube following, big following in book sales at mm-hmm. number seven. So, And then at number ten, we have The Secret History of Twin Peaks by Mark Frost. This is the co-creator of the series Twin Peaks that uh, people were watching 25 years ago. Amazing. <laughs> yeah, so um, we don't have a review of this, but this is at number 10. So those uh, people who were just kind of really into Twin Peaks 25 years ago are buying it right now. So I keep hearing rumors of the show being resurrected in yes, some fashion. Exactly, so I'm yeah. sure that's driving some of this too. Right, exactly. And then, and speaking of other cable series, at number 20, The Making of Outlander, the series, the official guide to seasons one and two. This is kind of a, you know, the exclusive look at the behind the scenes of the first two episodes of uh, Outlander. And that's at number 20. And that's who we have in our top 25 in nonfiction. Well, there's not much happening over in hardcover fiction either. At number two, um, which is our top debut, still hanging out behind Nicholas Sparks, who's sitting pretty at number one. Mm. Uh, number two is Escape Clause by John Sanford. Uh, we gave this a starred review and said it's outstanding. This is the ninth book in his Virgil Flowers 
thriller series. Um, Sanford very reliably gets to the top of the bestseller list. Uh, no surprise there. People are big fans of his work. And uh, this particular book starts with the kidnapping of a pair of rare tigers mm. from the Minnesota Zoo. And uh, the the pill-popping brain behind the operation is relying on a couple of hired thugs to act fast and process the tigers for ingredients used in traditional Chinese medicine. So it's very little time before uh, Virgil Flowers, the series hero, and his team to uh, rescue the tigers alive. And we say that plenty of humor leavens the action, and this entry is notable for its twisted, inept, and drug-addled bad guys. Mm, That's at number two. And at number five, The Obsidian Chamber by Douglas Preston and Lincoln Child. This is uh, another thriller. And again, Preston and Child have been very reliable bestsellers for a long time now. Our review says a, a melodramatic plot full of improbable developments mars this book, which is their 16th thriller featuring FBI agent Aloysius Pender Guest. Mm, great name. Yeah, it's an excellent <laughs> name. Aloysius Pendergast. I'm, I'm pretty sure he's, I've also seen that name as a, a Regency romance hero. Yeah, I think you're right. <laughs> it's exactly. Got, it's got that vibe. <laughs> yeah. um, so uh, there's, a, there's a whole lot going on here, including um, someone who comes back to life after uh, being tossed into a volcano. And, uh, you know, it's very exciting. They do this very cinematic stuff. And uh, we say that this entry lacks the originality and chills of the better books in this best-selling series. And uh, moving down the list rather a lot, uh, number 15 of Paris for One and Other Stories by Jojo Moyes. And uh, this vibrant collection, we call it, containing one novella and eight short stories. Once again, focuses primarily on heroines who discover their deeper strength and learn about themselves during periods of emotional strife. So classic women's fiction and uh, really nice to see that happening in short form. Usually that's sort of associated with longer novels. Um, We say that bold, humor and genuine. The stories in this collection are classic Moyes and will appeal to fans of her novels and newcomers alike. So if you've been hearing her name around for a long time and don't yeah. know where to start, this sounds like a great oh, perfect. starting point. Perfect. And uh, just below that at number 16 is The Christmas Town by Donna Van Leer. We don't have a review of this, uh, but uh, it's you know, continuing in the vein of her other best-selling Christmassy novels. Super, super feel-good, fuzzy, warm, cozy, as uh, the the weather is starting to get colder, at least here on the East Coast. Uh, it's uh, definitely starting to feel like time. Uh, today, my partner said to me, why are you so obsessed with fireplaces all of a sudden? You keep talking about wanting to sit in front of a fireplace. I'm like, it's just the time of year. It's what we do. So for some people, the literary equivalent of sitting in front of the fireplace is picking up a feel-good Christmas book. Oh, I like that. That's nice. And uh, that's definitely the the vibe of, of this one. Uh, if that's if that's right. what you're looking for, you just all you need to see is that cover with some snow blowing and a Christmas tree in the back of a red pickup truck. You know exactly what you're going to get and you're going to love it. And uh, finally, uh, down near the bottom of the list at number 22, Pharaoh, a novel of ancient Egypt. This is the sixth ancient Egypt book by Wilbur Smith, epic historical adventure. Again, uh, unfortunately, we don't have a review of this one, but uh, it's part of an ongoing series set in ancient Egypt. Um, plenty of thrills, chills, and excitement, uh, and uh, or what the jacket copy calls magic, mystery, romance, and bloody mm. intrigue. <laughs> uh, so uh, this, if that's if that's your thing this is a great way to get your fix and that's what we've got on the fiction list not not a lot of movement um definitely expecting to see more of those christmas type books start to come in 
Um, those are always of interest and they definitely start popping up around this time of year, right. late October into November. Unless the, uh, the upcoming election in the next two weeks kills everything. So, well, we'll, <laughs> we'll see, but I, I, I feel like even that, can't really kill people's Christmas spirit. Wow, this is true. This is so, true. Uh, or at least the desire for a little bit of fluffy escapism, right. Right. whether your thing is thrillers or romance or, you know, women's fiction or small town heartwarming stories, whatever it is, sometimes we all just need to get away from yep. this world exactly. for a while exactly. and into a really good book. And cookbooks might be a good escape too. That's true. Right. <laughs> I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Speaking of cookbooks, next up is Nancy Silverton telling us how to throw a delicious dinner party. We'll be right back. I'm Nadja Spiegelman. I'm the author of I'm Supposed to Protect You from All This, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Nancy Silverton on the line. Her new book is Moza at Home. Hi, Nancy. So glad you could join us. Hello, nice to be here. <laughs> nice to be with you. <laughs> well, uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, quote-unquote tavola, where you where you are in Umbria when you when you spend time there, and from which many of these recipes are are inspired. Well, you know, I am lucky enough to spend five weeks in the summer and two weeks in the winter at my second home in a tiny little uh, medieval village. Panacali uh, is the name of it, and I love it. And I've been going to the same town for about. 16 years now, and when I go, you know, people are always surprised when they ask me, so what do you do for five weeks? And I say, I cook, and I cook, and I entertain, and I cook some more. And uh, that answer is surprising to most because most people, when they vacation, they vacation away from what they do daily, which is, for myself, is running a restaurant. But when you uh, run a restaurant, and I have uh, actually... uh, Six restaurants, uh, two in Singapore, three in Los Angeles, and one in Southern California in Newport Beach. Um, I don't get to cook the way I want to cook. First of all, I am busy. I'm busy managing several employees. I'm uh, busy engaging with my guests. I'm busy up in the office thinking about future projects. But when I go to Italy, I get to relax. And what do I want to do when I relax? I want to cook. And I want to cook for the friends in the village, friends that come visit me. And it's such a leisurely time for me that I get to do things perfect. And I get to be doing them sort of by myself alone in the kitchen, which is very, just very, very, um, how should I say it? It's very, very therapeutic for me to be alone in the kitchen, not worrying about getting food out at a certain time and not worrying about what my paying guests think about what I'm making. So basically your time in, in Umbria is cooking for friends or family. And so the pressure's a little bit off. Um, and, and is this where, I mean, you've got the idea for, for uh, the, the home cookbook uh, and about cooking for family and friends at home? Well, um, absolutely, because it's also about entertaining and how to entertain at home in the sense of, I always find that it's just really uncomfortable going to somebody's house where the host is uh, locked away in the kitchen while the guests are at the table and the host is uh, trying to get each course out while it's hot and not being able to sort of have fun at their own party. And so for myself, I get to, I get to uh, 
be with my guests. And the way, way I've found out doing that is to make sure that everything that I'm preparing is just as good eaten at room temperature as it is straight from uh, the oven. Well, the, the running joke in my family is that my mother will be in the kitchen and say, does anyone need anything? And we say, we need you, mom. Right, so, exactly. Um, and, uh, and I hope she's listening today. So uh, <laughs> I, I want all of these suggestions. Tell us about how you select these dishes that hold up for big meals, that don't dry out, that can be eaten at room temperature. Um, these dishes that you can just bring out, sit down and eat with your guests. Well, you know, um, it it wasn't. It's not anything that's actually kind of calculated way in advance. It's just that I know, you know, kind of intuitively what can fit. So, for instance, let's take a salad, a simple salad. Um, I'll never choose a salad that's made with fragile greens, say uh, tender young lettuces or rucola, for that matter, because once that that salad is tossed with the vinaigrette, it probably has a shelf life of about 10 minutes before it starts to just wilt and fall apart. Hmm. So in the book, I don't give a, a recommendation for any salad that's fragile like that. And at one point, I do use an arugula salad, and I suggest just serving a big bowl of arugula uh, with a bottle of olive oil, uh, some cut lemon halves, a uh, little bit of vinegar, some sea salt, and let people sort of dress their own. So that's how I slip in things that are a little bit more temperamental. Mm. So tell us, give us a little example of what you might serve um, in Umbria or, or a couple of the maybe more Italian dishes. Okay, so what I do uh, there especially, um, and most of my cooking is done in the summer, those five five weeks that I'm there in um, in the summer because I get to entertain out outdoors. And that's my favorite way of of entertaining, and that's very similar to in uh, Los Angeles, where I think 362 days out of their year mm. you can eat outside. Mm. Um, so what I usually do is I pick whatever that protein is, and oftentimes it's something very simple, like some uh, uh, you know sausages, or I go visit my friend Dario Cicchini, and I buy steak from his butcher shop, and I and I do a simple grill, but then. What I love doing is all of the supporting vegetable dishes that I do on the side. And I start very early in the morning, and it's so satisfying to complete one after the other, and I just set it on my fireplace, and I watch my sort of tavola grow. Um, and it's always, you know, it's always seasonal uh, and um, and always very, 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 very simple. Um, I do a lot with onions. I do a lot with peppers. I do a lot with uh, with eggplant. Um, usually, when I'm there, I uh, there's fresh cranberry beans, um, and so I'll incorporate uh, you know a lot of beans into my into my dishes. Um, but all of the sort of uh, chapters are divided into picking that protein and then choosing. Um, dishes that would go with it. You know, I'm as, as much as I'm not a fan of uh, entertaining with me being in the kitchen, I'm also uh, not a fan of potluck dinners, I've mm -hmm. got to tell you. And the reason why is that people bring all sorts of crazy things and none of them go together on the plate. Mm -hmm. right. So I really carefully curated these chapters so that if you dumped everything on the uh, on your plate that you made out of the chapter and scrambled it up, you'd come back. You'd come out with one delicious tasting, whatever you'd call it, you know. Um, but I just want to warn 
you know, your listeners and my, and my readers that it's not a menu cookbook in the sense that I'm asking you to cook everything that's in that chapter to have a successful party. Cause that's not, not, not the case at all. It's sort of pick one, pick three, pick 10 of the things, but they'll all work together. So we've talked a little bit about the Italian influence in your cooking outdoors in Umbria, but but the, a lot of the dishes here are uh, you know have other influences such as Indian or Middle Eastern or even you know kind of general Latin. Um, tell us a little bit about those flavors and how they mix in with the Italians, uh, uh, the Italian ingredients. Well, you know, as you know, as the book is called Moats at Home, and it's really Nancy at Home because it's not rest, it's not recipes or dishes that I cook at the restaurant because my restaurants are Italian. But it's sort of the subtitle is that it is more than 150 crowd-pleasing recipes. So I tried to pick really crowd-pleasing, uh, crowd-pleasing, you know, flavors. So sort of like um, the Mexican influence, I suppose. Well, you know, we um, have such terrific uh, prep cooks at uh, – at our restaurant uh, in Los Angeles, and they really show off their talent um, making the staff meals. So I kind of got a lot of inspiration from their salsas that they that they'll make for a staff meal, or the way that um, Sal, our uh, kitchen manager, prepares rice. You know, and so I did get to incorporate a lot of those flavors, and a lot of those um, seasonings are not ones that I am uh, that familiar with. Mm. So tell us, tell us, uh, give us a couple of examples of of the uh, of some of the dishes, uh, some of the meals that you've uh, suggested in your cookbook. Um, wow, there's so so many. You know, I one of my well, first of all, one of my favorites I've got to say, and is my just my hamburger spread, and I love it so much because, uh, first of all, as I was telling you, in California, I'm outdoors, you know, 364 days a year, and I have a giant grill, but what I've found in uh, in entertaining is that I think that people really love to sort of participate or kind of personalize their meal, and there's no better way to do that um, than than preparing, you know, uh, hamburger, right? And then all the condiments and all the you know all the condiments that go with it. And I just always get a kick out of my guests uh, going up and really getting into if they're going to add the the um, glazed onions, and if they're going to go for the spicy mayo or the uh, or the uh, secret sauce, and if they want lettuce on it, and if they want their with uh, bacon, <clears throat> and <clears throat> then they all kind of sit down at the table and sort of uh, you know relish in their creations, and so I, that's one of my favorite spreads is just the simple hamburger spread. What a delightful image. Uh, I, I love everybody getting to DIY. And you said the same about that, that big bowl of rucola that everybody can just kind of uh, do do their own. And I feel like um, that's a nice way to take the place of the potluck where everybody is you know, maybe wanting to bring their, their own particular homemade creation. They still get that satisfaction of cooking and contributing, um, but uh, sort of in their own self-contained space. And in my way, right? <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> so um, what do you think uh, people who are giving dinner parties, say for you know, 10 or 12 friends or family members, what do you think they should keep in mind when they're deciding which of those recipes to pick from your, your well-curated chapters? You know, I think there's a lot of things to take it, you know, into consideration. One is time, right? So, for instance, um, if it's sort of a last-minute 
you know, a last minute party, I think that um, it's something that obviously can be put together last minute. So you couldn't do the pork, which um, cooks for up to seven hours, right? Or you right. couldn't do uh, braised celery, which, uh, you know, certainly takes a lot of time. But there's so many great vegetable dishes um, in every chapter that it doesn't really have to have a long cooked protein, which um, I find myself eating more. And, you know, the style that I'm eating more and more and more is really loading up on those vegetable dishes. What's the philosophy or some of the tricks that you learned in the restaurant that that you would bring home to the home table? Wow. Tricks in the restaurant. (laughs) Uh, First of all, there aren't any tricks. I think what I what I have always my philosophy has always been in the restaurant and certainly at home is really choosing wisely. And that really means choosing the best. And once you start with a great ingredient, there's little that can go wrong. To ruin it, right? I mean, 70% of the work is there for you. And I think that that is really, really important. And I, I am such a advocate of, uh, sort of going to, you know, uh, farmers markets and being inspired by what is seasonal, what is there. You know, you get to taste before you purchase. And that is just such an important part of, of cooking. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Nancy Silverton, author of Mozart at Home, uh, who's uh, talking about how there are, there are really uh, no shortcuts other than getting the freshest and the best ingredients. And um, I've done a little bit of uh, catering work myself, and um, it's it's true. You do end up just cooking the same way at home that you do in the restaurant. The only difference is maybe not having uh, that extra pair of hands to prep the vegetables for you. Uh, so this is uh, this cookbook is for home entertaining. Your first book was the Mozza cookbook based on the recipes from your restaurant. Um, what was different in the process between putting together those two books, the the sort of restaurant recipe book and well, this know, home cooking it's book? My, this is, I think, my ninth book. Mm-hmm. So uh, I've had a lot of uh, <laughs> a lot of practice. But the big the main difference of the last two, meaning Mozza uh, and the Mozza cookbook and Mozza at Home, is the Mozza cookbook is a restaurant cookbook and it's filled with the recipes from the Osteria mm-hmm. and our pizzeria. And uh, this book is not, this book is just filled with a whole eclectic group of recipes that I um, have made over the years at home. So what what was the process like of putting that together? Because, I mean, maybe you're incredibly organized. I wouldn't be surprised at all. But I, I know that all of my home cooking recipes are kind of scattered around. They're in recipe cards from you know, that, that I inherited. They're tucked into cookbooks on Post-it notes. How did you pull all of those recipes together for this book? First of all, I keep all those recipes. You keep them on cards and I keep them in my head. And I think that for me, the the one of the reasons why I actually uh, – write cookbooks is so that I can have those recipes at hand 
are on hand bound up because otherwise they're sort of lost, you know, just, you know, just out there somewhere. And so when I actually sit down to, uh, to write a cookbook, it's, uh, it's very satisfying putting it down on paper, but I just, uh, you know, I kind of take it for granted that, um, you know, I'm always around food. I feel, I feel I'm obsessed by food when I, when I go out to eat, I'm constantly thinking about how I can incorporate mm. the successes of the dishes that I'm eating into my own repertoire, whether it's the restaurant or entertaining or into a book. And so you'll, if you, you know, read some of the introductions, I'm full of giving credit to all the people out there, the, the chefs, my friends that have inspired certain dishes in that are in this book. And I talk about one, which, uh, there's a little restaurant across the street from me uh, called uh, Petit Trois, and I I love it. It's a 20-seat restaurant uh, that's owned by one of uh, Los Angeles's most uh, celebrated cooks, uh, and I just love it. His name is it's a Ludo's restaurant, and um, they, I went there for um, lunch about a year a year or so ago, and uh, he served me a celery root remoulade salad mm. and that dish was so great and I had forgotten completely about celery root remoulade and how much I really loved it but what I love what he did is he just shot showered it with um horseradish and it was such a wonderful uh compliment mm. to the horseradish and I just marched right across the street you know I was in the middle of writing this cookbook <laughs> and I copied that dish you know and I talk all about it in the in the introduction, how it drives me crazy when somebody makes something better than I do or when somebody <laughs> has a better idea than uh, one that I had come up with. And so, you know, that's the way that I uh, sort of compliment this person as I is is or compliment the, the dish is by trying to make it myself. And I have several of those sort of inspirational dishes in the book. The the sincerest form of flattery is cooking somebody else's food. Yep. So you worked with Carolyn Carino on this book. Uh, is this your first collaboration? No, it's our third. Um, the she also I also collaborated with her on the Mozart cookbook mm -hmm. and the cookbook that I wrote before that, which was called Twist of the Wrist, and and she also uh, wrote that cookbook with me. So how do the two of you work together? What's your collaborative process? You know. Um, What's great about Carolyn and great about having the this collaborating is that not only is she a terrific writer and not only is she so um, great at capturing the voice of the cooks that she uh, works with, because this I don't know how many cookbooks she has collaborated on, and by the way, she finally has her first one coming out, but at least uh, eight or ten, and each one is so uniquely different. So she really captures my voice. But what's great about her is that she gets to write down all the tedious parts of <laughs> writing a recipe, which is the instructions. And that is just so uh, <laughs> that, that that part is just not fun for me. You know, my son is my son is creating the uh, the the, uh, the flavors, um, but she gets to do the uh, the hard part. But being that this is the third one that we did together. It was a lot easier than the first because she understands my technique and the way that, um, you know, just sort of the, not only the way I cook, but the 
how important to me that the instructions are very clear and very detailed. I think some Mm -hmm. people try to make recipes seem easier by uh, skipping over some of the, you know, sort of some of the points in, in, uh, in, in that technique, but I'm very, I've always wanted to make sure that the recipes that I give work. And with that, there's sometimes a lot of instruction and she's just terrific at, at, uh, making those details flow. So how do you find the time to do, uh, to, to, to write a cookbook? I mean, you're managing restaurants, you're cooking. Um, wh- wh- when's the time that you do this? You know, um, once I start, you know, you sign that contract and it's always like, well, you got a year to do the book, right? So you sign that contract and, uh, I've learned that you got to start right away. That's one thing. And because that year comes very quickly. Uh, and so I really try to, um, sort of pick how many recipes I need to finish per week. And I really try to stick to that schedule. And then, so for this one, how did you do it? How did you, how did you, did you, uh, how, how developed was the thesis when you, when you got the book deal? Well, well, there, there was a certain, I mean, I had a certain repertoire that I knew that I was going to, uh, include because they were, you know, you know, food that I was cooking in Italy, in Italy and food that I was, uh, cooking at home already. So I knew what that was, but then I sort of dragged one of uh, our chefs into the process with me and we sort of were able to do it together and that's what really really uh, helped uh, get through this is that you know she and I sort of plowed through it together you know mm-hmm. and um, and that you know and that helped so it wasn't an isolate you know, I wasn't uh, I wasn't alone in this process. So you had mentioned about what 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 drives you to write cookbooks, and, and that's basically so you can finally write down the, those uh, recipes that have been in your head. What what do you get out of uh, you know writing cookbooks? What's the uh, is it something enjoyable or is it the finished product? What is what is it? Does does one influence the other? Does your cookbook writing influence well, you your know, own I'll, cooking? I'll tell you. You know the. A good example of the satisfaction you get in writing a cookbook, and that is the bread book that I did. And that was the third cookbook that I did was my bread book. Mm-hmm. And I was, you know, it it was such a grueling process for me, figuring out how to bake a perfect loaf of bread. Um, and at that time, this was back in um, the early 90s, there really weren't any bread cookbooks really around, I should say, in the style of bread that I was that that I made for, you know, that I baked for La Brea Bakery. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was so excited to sort of share that knowledge. And that was probably the most satisfying book that I did was, was that bread cookbook. And, I, you know, I'm still excited when I make something that I think is super delicious and super terrific. I'm, I'm really, I love sharing that. I really do. You know, a lot of people come from the school of they don't you know of secret recipes you know they're afraid of somebody stealing their idea or their technique or how to do something and i'm always very perplexed by that you know so um 
Before we close, do you have any last tips for home entertainers? I know that one of my big challenges is kind of cooking around all of my different friends, uh, different diets. You know, someone might need to be gluten-free. Someone might need to be dairy-free. We have vegetarians and vegans and people with religious restrictions. How do you kind of juggle that when you're dealing with a big party full of people? You know, I, well, first of all, there's always options. Um, and if I know that, uh, you know, somebody is coming with a particular, uh, diet, you know, dietary, uh, restriction, I make sure, uh, that there's choices, you know, that there's just not one thing for that person. So I do take that into consideration, but, you know, I guess quite honestly, I seem to have friends that are pretty open to what I make. So for instance, I do have a couple very close friends that don't eat seafood. Mm. So that's not something that I'll choose for that party. Um, but when there's uh, vegetarians, there's so many options that I always have that I'm not worried about not including the, the uh, vegetarian. Vegan, sometimes that's a little bit more uh, rough for me, but I really don't have that many friends that are vegan. And uh, gluten-free also, uh, again, there's always those those options. Right. And I mean, that's, I found that that's a particular challenge with Italian cooking because especially with pasta dishes, um, and breads and so forth, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to work around that. But again, those, those vegetable dishes sound very flexible and suitable for a lot of different kinds of people. Yep. And um, how do you uh, pick the vegetables that you're going to do at any given time other than, I mean, you already mentioned seasonality, but are there particular vegetable pairings or combinations that really uh, kind of get you going? No, you know, again, it's just that seasonal. It's just the seasonal vegetable that uh, tastes delicious, you know. Uh, other than that, uh, there's really no uh, particular particular reason why I'll, I'll choose and you know a certain vegetable the only thing that again is my uh, prerequisite is that once it's cooked it can sit on the table mm -hmm. for as long as possible <laughs> and most vegetables are very forgiving that way that's very thoughtful of them <laughs> <laughs> um, so Nancy any final words of advice for home cooks picking this up um, anyone who thinks you know I couldn't possibly cook restaurant quality recipes or finds this a little bit daunting no you know uh, and I didn't want the book you know lots of times when a, a chef uh, does their version of their at home book it's supposed to be much simpler or not have any of the techniques that they use in the restaurant. And that's not the case here. You know, it's the, nothing is really, um, streamlined. It's how I would make this dish if I was making it at the restaurant too. But there's all sorts of, uh, you know, there's all levels of, uh, of complexity, you know, and it's, I think it's really easy to see once you, um, you know, thumb through the book and you can tell which one might have a little, you know, require a little bit more knife skills than others, right? But other than that, you know, even in my restaurant, we don't use any fancy equipment. I've got a stove, uh, I have uh, burners, I have a deep fat fryer, but that's about all that we have. So you're not going to find anything that requires much more than what you probably have at home anyway. 
We've been talking with Nancy Silverton. You can find her book, Mozza, at home in stores right now and get ready for your next dinner party. Nancy, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you so much for having me. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Deputy Reviews Editor Gabe Habish talks about the best books of the year, so stay tuned. Hi, I'm Robert Canigal. I'm the author of Eyes on the Street, The Life of Jane Jacobs, and here we are on Publishers Weekly Radio. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. Today, PW Deputy Reviews editor Gabe Habash is here to tell us all about the year's best books. Hi, Gabe. Hi, guys. How are you? Always good to have you here. So um, this is an exciting annual event here at Publishers Weekly. We uh, go through all of the books that we've received this year uh, with publication dates this year, and we pick our favorite. So uh, who's our cover model this year? This is always uh, an exciting decision. Yeah, so this year um, we uh, went with Colson Whitehead, who Mm -hmm. was one of the biggest books of the year, who had one of the biggest books of the year, The Underground Railroad, Um, certainly one of the biggest um, fiction books and one of the bigger literary fiction books. Um, It was an Oprah pick, and they moved the pub date up, I think, from September to August, I think is how that went down. Um, We profiled him earlier this year. And yeah, it's been everywhere. And I think the general consensus is this is his book. You know, he's been around a while and he's written a number of books over the last couple of decades, but it seems like it's all like becoming a perfect storm and the book is everywhere as it deserves to be. Yeah. Yeah. He's, I've been hearing his name uh, off and on because for a long time he was kind of straddling that science fiction literary mm-hmm. border. Um, and I, I feel like this one, uh, he, he really sort of grabbed people on both sides because I've heard people in science fiction circles talking about it too as a fascinating work of sort of fantastical alternate history. Yeah. So if, and for those who aren't familiar with the details of the story, it's a, it's the, um, a slave's flight up to the north to get away from her plantation in Georgia. And what Rose was saying about the um, uh, science fiction elements sort of comes into play when she is traveling through the different states and they all sort of have their own little alternate universe rules that he takes a little bit of liberty with um, the historical record. Mm. Um, He makes the Underground Railroad a literal railroad. Yeah, right, with conductors and uh, trains and all that other good stuff. And I I think in our profile with him, he mentioned that um, Gulliver's Travels was an inspiration for the book. So Mm -hmm. you can see how when when, uh, the protagonist's name is Cora, when you see her in different places, you can see that they have their own set of rules. So... Yeah, it's, it's a really brilliant book, and he sort of, you know, meshes the, the literary and with the more genre elements. It's a great success. So what else is on our top 10 books of 2016? So, yeah, we have, um, we, we picked 10 for the focal point. Um, so there's five fiction and five nonfiction. I guess we could just go in any order. So I'll start with um, Barkskins by Annie Proulx, which um, is... A pretty remarkable achievement. It's six or seven hundred pages, maybe eight hundred pages. Uh, covers three hundred years, and it starts in the late sixteen uh, hundreds um, with two woodsmen who sort of end up in uh, Canada, and it traces their descendants through hundreds of years. And you sort of see how small decisions and how people uh, come together and fall apart, and how that reflects over. 
that becomes like small changes will make giant differences mm-hmm. over the course of a number of years. So that's Barkskins by Annie Pruel. Yeah, that was one of my favorite novels all year. Yeah. I mean, just the scope and the breadth of it was was pretty impressive. Yeah, and I mean, again, she's she's also been around for a while, but this is a pretty remarkable uh, yeah. in scope, like you said, and there's hundreds of characters, and uh, characters will drop in and fall out and be summarily killed off and has sort of like a Game of Thrones thing going on in that way. But <laughs> so that's, that's a Barkskins and that's a novel. Um, on the nonfiction side, uh, there's Blood in the Water, which is about the Attica prison uprising. Mm-hmm. Um, we, uh, we had the author on as a guest yeah. a few episodes ago. Right. Yeah. And this one is, um, I mean, you'll, you'll see there's a general pattern with the stuff that tends to rise to the top on the nonfiction side and maybe to a lesser extent on the fiction side that, um, the more uh, current the topic is, then they sort of, you know, become more and more a part of the current conversation. And this one, um, with the stuff that's going on with prison reform, is mm-hmm. you know timely as ever. And even right. though it's uh, being published on, I think, the 45th anniversary of the uprising. Right. That's right. Yeah. So you know, despite uh, the topic, it's still um, as current as ever. Yeah. Well, great timing for the author and the publisher. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. And with the prison strike going on yeah. right now as well, yeah. uh, a lot of people are talking about comparisons between that and Attica, both yeah. the activism on behalf of the prisoners and the ways that authorities are responding. Right. Yeah. So then um, in a similar vein, um, uh, another nonfiction pick in the top 10 is Evicted, Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. Um, and that is, uh, it sort of uses a study of, I think it's eight families in Milwaukee, um, and sort of traces, uh, their crisis in, in finding like affordable housing and how this is sort of a microcosm for how poverty is sort of created in, uh, the American system. Um, and it's not only informative, but it's, it has a lot of, um, narrative appeal because you get so attached to the families and following their stories. And then another nonfiction pick is Guilty Thing, A Life of Thomas De Quincey by Francis Wilson. That's published by uh, Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. And that is a um, mesmerizing biography of the 19th century English writer, um, best known for Confessions of an English Opium Eater. And this is a good biography because not only does he back it up with you know all types of wonderful research, but he De Quincey is just a natural biographical subject because he was, you know, an obsessive literary stalker. He was a uh, quote unquote born journalist uh, and just a visionary author. Um, so this is a, this is a great biography uh, to check out. Um, and I think we have two nonfiction left. Mm-hmm. Um, the next one is a kingdom of their own, the family Karzai and the Afghan disaster. Mm-hmm. And that is by Joshua Partlow. And that's from Knopf. And um, he's part of a veteran foreign correspondent, and he gives a pretty involved account of um, America's entanglement with Afghanistan, which is, I think, is our our longest war. Mm-hmm. If you go by the terms of how long U.S. had relations with uh, the Karzai family, and the it's just a you know wonderful account, and um, you know pretty eye opening at the same mm-hmm. time. Um, and then I'll just finish off the nonfiction first, um, since I'm the fiction editor and I like to talk about it. <laughs> um, so then the last one on the nonfiction side in the top 10 is secondhand time, the last of the Soviets. And that's by Svetlana Alexeyevich. And that's from random house. Um, Alexeyevich was sort of 
all over the place last year because she won the Nobel mm-hmm. and uh, the Nobel Prize for Literature, um, which I guess was sort of controversial at the time since she's a journalist. And but now that pales in comparison to the controversy that surrounded Bob Dylan this year. <laughs> right, right. Um, so she looks, you know, pretty. <laughs> pretty tame by that comparison. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, this is an account of um, uh, real people in the in the Soviet Union as it reached its end, um, and again has um, sort of the same appeal that uh, Evicted has, where it she really um, drills into these uh, real people's lives, and they become you know pretty pretty vivid characters on the page. So we've talked about the nonfiction, um, and we've done Barksians by Annie Proul on the fiction side and Colson Whitehead also um, the remaining three picks in the top 10 are on the fiction side. And the first one is 99 stories of God by joy Williams. And that's from tin house and joy Williams has also been around for a while. This is, this is a pretty interesting book. It's 99. It, the, the title is, is an accurate description. They're very, very slim stories and they're nominally about God, but if, you've read joy Williams, you know that she has a pretty askew point of view. So a story about God could be anything from God finding himself at a hot dog eating contest to being in line for a shingles vaccination. And so I would not approach it as a faith based book. Mm. Um, There's (laughs) some very dark humor um, and anybody who's read joy Williams will uh, find that her style perfectly fits these little these little flash fiction pieces. And it's great. We got a small publisher on, on the list. Yeah. Yeah. Tin, Tin House. House Tin is, House. Powerful, is doing great work. Yeah. yeah. And then the last two, the second to last one would be The Vegetarian, and that's by Han Kang. And it's translated from the Korean by Deborah Smith. And that's from Hogarth. This book sort of came out of nowhere. It's done really well this year, um, just by being in translation. And it got a big boost. I think it came out in February. But it got a big boost mid-year because she won the uh, Man Booker International Prize. Mm. And this is a uh, really, really sort of unsettling depiction of a woman who undergoes this bizarre physical change when she has this bloody nightmare. And she takes as a sign she shouldn't eat meat anymore. And it's sort of a horror story, and it's also sort of a psychological thriller, and... um it's pretty remarkable and uh especially um to see uh it's sort of like leading the charge for um south korean literature at the moment and um it's just sort of a great uh intro to that that country's literature it's wonderful to see a a translated book Uh, make the top 10 list yeah Yeah, because that definitely doesn't happen all the time but i I feel like at least over in my little genre corner of the world translated fiction is getting bigger and bigger and bigger yeah and we have, we actually, Alexeyevich also is, is translated from the Russian. Right. I should have mentioned that. Mm-hmm. So we have two in the top 10. That's great. Um, and then finally, uh, last but not least, is What Belongs to You by Garth Greenwell, which is a debut novel from FSG. And this book also sort of came out of nowhere. It came out in January and picked up steam really quickly. It's a really, really wonderful novel about um, this. American teacher who's um, in Sofia, Bulgaria, and he has a um, sort of chance encounter with this young drifter who he meets, I think, in the Ministry of Culture bathroom, and it starts off as a purely sexual relationship, and then it just gets increasingly complicated, and just the intensity of the writing and how 
Greenwell depicts the relationship between the two men is just really, really memorable and it, it's impossible not to have a strong reaction to it. Um, and that's, that's a, a wonderful book. So, um, yeah, we have a pretty great mix this year. We have, um, you know, equal parts fiction and nonfiction and that's just the top 10. We have, I think, uh, a hundred total fiction or a hundred total adult titles across all categories and then we have 50 children's. Um, so there's 150 more if none of those do anything. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds great. Or even if they do, I mean, yeah. the more, yeah. the more, the better. Yeah. Uh, this is, this is always like the best, hardest part of my right. job is looking through all these great books to find the ones that are superlative. And it's so hard. Yeah. It's so hard to make those decisions. And, uh, yeah, I really, I feel a sort of sigh of relief yeah. that it's done, uh, but I, it's it's uh, it's also interesting to see how our picks compare to the other yeah. top lists that come out over the course of yeah. the year. So. And soon uh, we're we're already starting with 2017, so we're already starting looking at those. Yeah, so. it's exciting. Well, Gabe, thank you so much for coming sure. on the show and uh, giving us the rundown. And uh, all of our best books picks will be up on our website for all of our listeners to check out. Great. Thanks for having me, guys. Thanks a lot. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, I'm Belle Boggs, the author of The Art of Waiting, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for another tasty author interview. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. In the meantime, you can listen to this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio absolutely free at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio. Subscribe to our podcast on iHeartRadio and iTunes and hear every new episode streamed live on audiobookradio.net. Check those sites every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 